Well, we're going to, for the next 10 weeks, look at pillars. And what I mean by that is, we're gonna look at four foundational pillars that essentially the ministry, strategies, philosophy of Calvary Church actually sit on. So I'll tell you what the pillars are, but before I show them to you, I wanna tell you, you're not gonna see anything new and novel. Maybe the wording will be a little different, but hopefully every one of the pillars and everything we talk about, you'll sit there and say, oh, that's why we do that, I see how it works, or maybe even some of the language will actually be familiar. So we're gonna look at four pillars. So we're not actually gonna look at a pillar tonight. We need to kind of do a little bit of an intro. You'll see how that works in a minute. Uh, but here are our four pillars, and this language should be familiar, but it's gonna take at least 10 weeks to kind of unpack it. We could probably take 10 weeks on each one of these. Uh, we're not doing that though, right? We'll be here through summer. Um, the first one is the Bible's a big story. And what I mean by that, that that's a pretty radical concept because lots of people, lots of Christians, lots of Christian leaders, preachers, they approach the Bible as if it were a collection of parts rather than a big story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that changes how we read the Bible and how we look at any individual passage, knowing that it fits into a big story. The technical word for that, and we may say this in a week or so, the technical name for the big story is we read the Bible as a meta-narrative, as a big narrative. It has lots of twists and turns in it, but it is a big story, and everything fits into the story in either the middle, the beginning, or the end. The second pillar is that the Bible is Jesus' story, and you should be real familiar with that concept, which means every passage is moving to Jesus or from Jesus. Now, the technical name that you may have heard thrown around or the technical name that I used to always use in the seminary, right? So we talk about meta-narratives and a Christotelic hermeneutic. That's, it's Jesus' story. What that means is the word or the ending telos in Greek means goal or end. And so what Christotelic means is everything has its goal in Jesus, and so when you read a passage, and we've been in Psalms, right? When you read a Psalm, remember a few weeks ago I said, after you read the Psalm and you say, okay, what's God teaching me? What am I learning about God? What am I learning about myself? How does the Psalm point me to Jesus? Go back and read the Psalm and read it as if Jesus was saying it. And it's amazing how all of a sudden the perspective will be slightly different. And then read the Psalm as being about Jesus. I was playing around with Psalm 1 and Psalm 150 today, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, a, a little, I'll show you how this works. Uh, Psalm 1 begins, right? Blessed is the one. Well, the tense there for blessed is this. The person who is continual and completely blessed is the person who does not walk and sit and stand in company apart from God. Well, how many people do you know that's ever done that? Well, no one's ever done that. Abraham didn't do it. Moses didn't do it. David didn't. Well, there is one person in the Bible that actually deserves to be blessed according to what Psalm 1 says, and it's not the author of the Psalm. It's the one to whom the Psalm points, and all of those who are his people are blessed in him. So that's why I mean, the Bible's a story, but it's Jesus' story. Thirdly, the third pillar we'll look at is the mission and ministry require a prioritized theology. Now, I know you're going to know this. 
We talk about absolutes, convictions, preferences. That is a prioritized theology. The absolutes are things that the Bible clearly, regularly says, and those things that are believed across denominational lines through history. Well, they're the main things, right? Now, we all need convictions, and we live by our preferences, but the absolutes are kind of the main thing. That's a prioritized theology. We'll work on that for a couple of weeks and down the road a little bit. And lastly, the last pillar is gospel transformation or change is always inside to outside. It's not self-help trying to you know, conform your outward behavior to what the Bible says. It's change of heart. Repentance is on the inside that then brings an outside change. So it's transformation on the inside that brings change on the outside. Now, those four things may not seem like that big of a deal. I'd say part of that is because you hang out at Calvary Church a little bit, and maybe the language is a little different, and you'll learn other ways to say the same things. But when you put that package together, it may, those things may not make Calvary unique, but it certainly makes Calvary distinct in taking those four things, putting them together, and you'll see how they fit as we go through um, the next few weeks. Now, now, here's what you're going to discover. Some of you already know this, but let me tell you if you don't, you'll soon discover. I can easily fill the amount of time we have each Wednesday night. So I'm not going to run out of things to say. You may get bored and not listen, but I can keep talking. It may not make sense after a while, but I can just keep talking. That'll be kind of boring and not very engaging, which means you need to help me. And even though we're in a big room, don't let the big room kind of put you off. If you have a question, you know, raise your hand and I'll, I'll be able to hear it if you yell. I'll then repeat it so people online can hear it. And that'll make things a little more interesting. So if you have a question, if you're confused, if um, you want to make a point, if you got a good illustration you want us to know, if we all participate, it'll be more fun, it'll be more engaging, and it'll probably be a, a little more beneficial in the long run. Okay, agreed? We'll do that? Okay, good. Well, I want to take a minute to show you something I guess I developed um, in the past five weeks or so. The categories have probably been there, but they coalesced in my mind, I guess, these past few weeks, and it's been real helpful to me. And uh, so I'm going to tell it to you. If it's not helpful to you, that's fine. Three categories um, in ways to think about things, okay? The first way is inputs. We have thousands of inputs into our lives, right? And so think about it. The books you're reading, the magazines you're reading, television shows you watch, things you read online, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, experiences, conversations, this class, the experience in your house with your family, all the all inputs. Um, you know, one of the things that it would be helpful for us to, you know, kind of assess once in a while, do you have the right kind of inputs? And so all those, do you have the right, do you have time and have you carved out some space you know, to allow the Bible to be an input? Do you have time to reflect and think and allow the Spirit to kind of take the things you're reading or living and have that be an input, right? When you're, do you have conversations with people where you're actually paying attention and you're mindful rather than mindless in the conversation? So we have all these inputs. But interestingly and sadly, most of the time, all we do is get inputs, and we feel inundated and overwhelmed with data. You ever feel like that? Just, it keeps coming at us. And we live in the information age, right? 
we are continually, you know, drinking at the fire hydrant of stuff, all these inputs. So we need a second category, and that's insights. So out of the inputs, you need insights. But here's the hard part for us. Insights come through reflection and thought, kind of downtime. I used to say to seminary students all the time, for every hour you spend reading a book or reading the Bible, you should take 20 minutes to think about what you've read so you don't just become what you've read, but you're assimilating and processing and critiquing the things you've read. We would be better at insight if we gauge the inputs, but then reflected on it, right? Thought about it, kind of, what, what's this mean? And here's what happens. With all of the inputs, if you give think time, reflection time, meditation time, whatever you want to call it, if you do that, God will bring together some of the inputs in ways that those giving the input never intended. You ever have that experience where things kind of coalesce? A conversation over here, something you read in the Bible, a sermon you heard a year ago, all of a sudden, here's what insight means, oh, I see, I get it, right? The expressions, the penny dropped, right? The lights came on, that's insight. Here's the problem. We are often so consumed with inputs that we never take time to go from inputs to insights. And we just live un, you know, under the you know, deluge of inputs, never you know, wrestling, never thinking, critiquing, evaluating, reflecting. So you need insights time. And then the last one, and notice inputs are gigantic, right? Insights are gonna be much fewer. So if you think of an Excel spreadsheet, your input, you'll have pages and pages and pages, hopefully. Make sure you have the right ones. Insights, far fewer, right? Maybe, you know, in the course of six months or a year, maybe you'll have a page of insights, things that are really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I get that. The last one I call integration because I like things that start with the same letters, right? You probably know that by now, right? So integrate, now here's what I mean. I don't mean you just apply it once or twice to your life. That's what typically happens when you hear a sermon, go to a Sunday school class, small group. Oh yeah, I'll try that. You do it one or two times. Integration, I mean by that, what insights do you make part of your life? Not trying it, not dabbling in it. What insights are worthy of becoming part of your life? And you need to practice the heck out of those things to make it a part of your life, right? I know... Some of you uh, sitting here have, whatever you call them, devotions, quiet time, and you're faithful in doing that, right? It didn't just happen. It went from inputs to insight. Hey, this is pretty important, right? I keep my butt in the chair. Every once in a while, God shows me something significant. But you had to practice that habit and practice it until now. The day isn't quite right unless you have that, right? Some of you um, work out regularly, right? that it's integrated into your life. It's a part of who you are, right? Well, it takes work to do that. There's a whole process. And the process is sometimes hard to learn, but here, here, here's the learning process of learning something new. Um, you go from conscious incompetence. You ever hear that? You're conscious and you're incompetent, right? Um, excuse me, unconscious. Unconscious incompetent. You don't know how to do it, but you don't even know you don't know how to do it, right? Um, I've got two grandsons, right? Um, Jeffrey's four, 
If you were to say to Jeffrey, Jeffrey, can you drive to Mimi's house? Yes, no, no problem at all. Put me behind the wheel, right? He's unconscious and incompetent. But then when you're 16, right, you get your learning, learner's permit, you go from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. Now you know you're incompetent, right? You remember those days? You can't have the radio on. You consciously think, I got to take my foot off the accelerator, put it onto the brake, slow down 30 feet before the stop sign, come, I got to put my blinker on, right? Then eventually, as you practice that, becoming integrated into your life, right? You are then consciously competent. You've done it enough that now you're conscious and you're competent, but you've got to think about it, right? You drive on purpose. How do you drive now? Unconscious. Competence though, right? I mean, thankfully, we don't have to think every little thing. A ball comes in front of the street. You don't think about stopping before you know what you stopped, right? You've gone from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence. Those are integration things, right? So make sure you've got the right inputs. And, you know, this class should be an input. Um, what insights are you going to gain? And I'm telling you this for this reason. Maybe over the next few weeks, There'll be an insight or two. Maybe some things will come together. The light will go on, right? The coin will drop. Well, make note of the insight. And maybe at the end of the 10 weeks or even during the 10 weeks, a couple of things are going to happen and say, you know what? I need to make this or that part of my life. Not dabble, not try it once or twice. This needs to become an integrated part of my life. So I've been working on that for a few weeks. And again, I think we all do it. It's nice to have the categories and make sure I'm thinking in the right categories. All right, well, tonight, we're going to look kind of at the context. And here's what I mean. We're not going to talk about the pillars tonight. We're going to talk about what ministry is and what mission is all about. Now, here's why that's important. Have you ever noticed that we often use words all the time and we think we know what they mean, but we haven't thought about what they mean for a really long time. Well, two of those words that show up all the time in church are ministry and mission. So for example, have you ever noticed? Calvary has like a billion ministries. We have kids' ministry, student ministries, women's ministries, men's ministry, worship ministry. We have bridge ministry. We have care. We have all kinds of ministries. What does ministry mean? Like, how in the world can bridge and care be the same as worship? Like, ministry, what does it mean? Mission the same way. Um, you got to mind your mission. You hear that in the business world too, right? Your mission needs to be top of mind. But what exactly do we mean by mission? Now, my guess is that we could come up with a definition and we'd all be in the ballpark about what it is. All right, now, this is your turn. Take like 20 seconds, and if you have a piece of paper, you can think about it, or do it on your phone. You write a definition for either of the terms. What does ministry mean to you? Like, well, what do you think it means? Or what does mission mean? I know you say that word all the time. I know you read it all the time here at Calvary Church. Well, what does it mean? All right, 20 seconds, your turn. Then I'm going to ask some of you. If we were in class, I wouldn't let you look up here at me. You'd have to be doing or writing or typing something. 
Hey, anybody want to share? There are no wrong answers. Well, there may be a wrong answer, but anybody want to kind of share their definition? And we'll all be nice to you. Any definitions? What do you got? Some of you are involved in ministry. What is it? Go ahead. Okay, ministry to serve others. Okay, but very good, right? And so it's some, we do something, right? So it isn't passivity. We do something, but it's not primarily for our personal benefit, step one. It's for the benefit of others, right? So other people are involved. I can't do ministry by myself. So ministry, others are involved and I'm involved and somehow I'm putting their interest ahead of my own. Yeah, you kind of get the idea. Anything else? Who, who, who wants to add to that or switch it up a little bit? Okay. Okay, good. So, so now we're adding God. Um, so yeah, God's involved in ministry, right? And so it's teaching others about, so we got others again, and I'm involved. I've got to be a learner. So I'm learning something from God. I know something, but I'm not the end user. So I'm kind of a conduit, right? Kind of like serving. So I've been served. I'm sure that was the implication, but I'm not the end user. I, I'm a conduit serving, teaching others, right? So now we've got three people in the ministry dance. Same with mission, right? I'm called to do this. I don't do it alone. It's for the purpose of someone else, right? One other, can we play with one more? You're all doing well. Anybody else want to add to the, yes. How come all the women answer? Come on, guys. Go ahead. Good, very good. So now we're getting a little more specific. So we get Jesus and it's taking, to use what our little motto, right? Continuing what Jesus started. So we are, just like the Bible says, we are the body of Christ. And so Christ's body, no longer on earth, but his spiritual body is, we are that. And we do what he did. We teach, we serve, we, we were hands and feet, and you would say mouth, right? We're all of those things together. Yeah, see how that goes? Good, you're all good. My guess is when we talk about ministries, when you talk about the ministries of Calvary Church, that definition is somewhere in there, but it's not front and center of your thinking, is it? When you think about what you're going to do in ministry, are you really thinking, okay, so I'm the recipient of what God's doing, and then I'm the initiator in the others of what God has done for me, right? All right, well, if you haven't realized this by now, uh, you'll realize it these next few weeks. I think more in pictures than in words. And so let's look at a couple of verses where we get words, and then I'll kind of make a picture that your definitions would actually do a really good job of explaining. Here's maybe my favorite verse that describes ministry and mission in the Bible. And my guess is you would never have thought of it in that context. Galatians 4.12. Paul writes, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. So there we've got the two parties, right? Paul's involved, calling people in a sense, pleading, become like me, because I became like you. Now, in the sentence, Paul's call comes before what he did, but in actuality, what he did becoming like them preceded his call for them to be like him, right? 
So that he, he says it that way. He pleads, become like me, for I became, because I became like you. Step one, I became like you. Now you become like me. There's the others and Paul in that. Now notice there's two really important non-negotiable um, parts to that. There is becoming like them, right? I became like you. And there's the call to become like him. Now, we live in a world where you can err on either side there, right? There are, we're not going to name names, there are churches, there are ministries, there are Christians who say, okay, you know what, we're just going to become like them. We have no right to say our views are better than them, our beliefs are better than someone else, so we're just going to become like them, become like them, we are them. Well, none, that's not what Paul says ministry is. He became like them, but that's not the end. That's the means he became like them so that they can become like him. Now, you, so you can become like them, become like them, and never call them to be like you, or you can never become like them. And so you wind up standing way over here, and they're the people you're pleading with over there, and you wind up saying, if not saying, here's what it sounds like. Hey, you, I'm nice, you're nasty. Come on over here and become like me. Right? You, is it, that, that's what a lot of non-Christians feel that Christians do, right? Hey, non-Christian, I'm good. You're bad. Become like me. I'm righteous. You're a moral slug. Become like me, right? That's not ministry, right? Notice Paul has two parts. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me. Yes, become like me. We're in process together. Because I became like you. Paul didn't stand over here yelling. He walked over to them and then walked with them to where he needed to be. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Um, two really hard steps, and it'll come out in the picture. Uh, here's another one a little longer. We won't dissect it as much, but Paul expounds on this idea in 1 Corinthians 9. So here's what he writes. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible, right? I became like you, become like me. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I might by all possible means save some. Notice, I became like you, not as an end, as a means so that you can become like me. Not that Paul's perfect, Paul's in process. And the call, become like me, that's not a place, it's a journey. And so when Paul says, and when you see other disciples, they're calling people to become like them in process, moving closer to what God wants them to be. So that works? Two parts to that. Okay, so here's my picture. All right, there's a... That's a target, right? I, I get to say, I'm going to have to tell you what some of the pictures are, otherwise you won't know. <laughs> that's a target. Um, that's a group of people. And that's an arrow from the people to the target. We're good? So here is what ministry is. Ministry mission is being used by God to influence people 
to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. Ministry being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's not coercing them to become where, you know, move where God wants them to be. It's not judging them. It's not moving to where they are and staying there. It's being used by God. God's the initiator, right? God's the one who's done it in us. We then call others to join that dance. It's influencing people to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. Um, all your definitions were kind of right there, right? Isn't that what the Galatians passage said? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 9 says? Yeah. I became like you, so you can become like me. Um, influencing people to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. That assumes that we know something about where God wants people to be. That assumes we know something about where people are and we go and join them where we are, not as an end, but as a means, right? Now, here's what I find fascinating and a little disheartening. That's a simple little stupid picture and a simple definition but it becomes complex really, really quickly. Here's what I mean. Where does God want people to be? Boy, all of a sudden, there are lots of complexities in that, right? For example, how do you know where God wants people to be? Well, you're going to exegete the scripture, so now we have exegesis. It's theology, putting the pieces together. It's knowing something about accountability. It's building character. It's building skills, right? So it's knowledge, character, skills, and all those disciplines uh, that we associate with the Christian life. It's all kind of helping us move to where God wants people to be. Okay, who do you know that right now is where God wants them to be if they're not in heaven? We're, we're, nobody, right? And so we're calling people to a destination, um, but nobody's really there yet. And so do you understand why some non-Christians can look at us and say, well, you guys are like so pompous, right? And no, we're calling them to a process. We're not calling them to the point we're at. We're still on the arrow somewhere. You could spend your entire life trying to figure out where God wants people to be, and we'd never exhaust it. You have all the spiritual fruit stuff, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All the, that's where God wants people to be, right? Those character traits. Spiritual gifts, that's where God wants people to be. God wants people to be knowledgeable. God wants people to have character fruit. God wants people to have skills, know their gifts, and practice their gifts. I, you'll never exhaust that. All of a sudden, our simple definitions become complex. Oh, yeah. Where are people? Well, that's pretty complex too, right? We have whole disciplines helping us understand where people are. Psychology, sociology, anthropology, politics, you name it, right? Geography, where people are all over the place. Do you know the values people hold? My guess is you don't really know the nuances of your neighbor's values. You may not even know the nuances of your kid's values or parents' values real well. Well, where people, it's hard to know where they are. And you can spend your entire life trying to figure out where people are, where you are, and you'll never get to the bottom of that. So all of a sudden, our simple definitions gotten real complex. We're never going to nail where God wants people to be, and we're never going to nail where people are. We, we kind of, we have something, we know something about where God wants people to be, and we know something about where people are, but boy, the details of those two become very complex. 
well, how about means of influence or bridges, bridges of influence, right? Well, again, we have whole schools there, right? Evangelism, discipleship, leadership, management. (laughs) They're all means, right? They're all bridges, trying to move people, influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. And we're never going to master any of that, are we? I mean, do you realize how many new leadership books come out every year and they just keep selling and selling and they keep printing new ones because we never master it. Like there isn't the book. And so where does God want people to, well, we kind of have an idea, but we'll never exhaust it. Where are people? Well, we kind of have an idea, we'll never exhaust it. And what means of influence? Well, that's really complex too. But the general definition kind of makes sense. Uh, I was thinking right before I came down of a couple of examples. Um, so let, let me give you a couple of biblical examples just to kind of make the point. So each week we'll kind of define a little bit, explain a little bit, maybe illustrate a little bit, and then you'll need to help me see if you got it or not, right? I was reading um, Exodus 22 the other day. Now, Exodus 22, for those of you who don't know, that, Exodus 22 comes after Exodus 20. What's in Exodus 20? Anybody know? Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments. What's in Exodus 19, or what kind of gets summarized in Exodus 19? That's the Exodus, right? So, so it, it, and just right there, that's profound. Do you realize? God does not give the Israelites the Ten Commandments and say, now, if you guys practice these things and obey well, I'll get you out of slavery. I'll do, no, no, no. He first delivers them, saves them, frees them, then says, oh, by the way, If you really want to stay free and not kind of get in bondage again to your own, you know, fleshly fleshly lust and stuff, here's the way you should live. So salvation precedes obedience, right? It's not believed, obey, saved. It's believed, saved, obey. There it is, right, in the chapters. Well, anyway, in Exodus 22, you have um, a bunch of laws uh, right after Exodus 20, 10 commandments, in real general terms, right? Here's kind of what God wants you to do. The chapters that follow that get real specific. Like if you steal stuff, here's what you got to do. So Exodus 22 is a lot about stealing. And, you know, God really knows what he's doing. We shouldn't be amazed at that, but it is incredible. Like God really is smart. So, So here's what he says. Tell me if this doesn't make sense. If you've stolen something from your neighbor or somebody else, You don't just have to give back or pay back what you took. You have to make restitution and pay back more than you took. Because you need to compensate them for the inconvenience, for the violation, and for them not being able to use what you took. So if you took a dollar, you need to pay back two dollars. If you um, had, you know, an ox or something like that, you got to give them two ox. You got to make restitution. Not just pay back what you owe. You need to pay back more than what you owe, right? And it, it, sometimes 20% more, sometimes double. It's different in the chapter. But it's always more than what you took. Now, doesn't that make sense? There's, there's a point that just feels right. What do we do in our culture? Now, this is not a talk on culture. But what do we do in our culture? Okay, you steal from somebody. We put you in prison. What the heck does the prison have to do with, if you're in prison, how are you going to pay back what you took and how are you going to make restitution? You're like off the payroll, you're in jail. 
Rather than paying back, we're spending more money to keep you in jail. And then we have to make up these crazy, well, has the person been rehabilitated? Well, the more you separate the crime or offense from the punishment, of course, you're going to begin to question kind of what the punishment, anyway, God's way makes perfect sense, right? If you took 100 hours, fine. Paid them back 200. You violated them. They didn't have that 100 bucks to do what they wanted to. You got to pay them back 200. That, That makes sense, right? Now, fast forward that. One day in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is coming up toward Jericho. And there's a little short guy trying to catch a view of the parade. What's his name? Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, a little short guy. And he climbs up a tree. Now, think of our definition. Jesus turns the corner, and what does he do? He illustrates this perfectly. He walks through all the religious pompous people, calling Zacchaeus a sinner. He walks over to the base of the tree and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down here. I'm going to stay at your house today. And it says Zacchaeus comes down and welcomes him gladly. Now, in that culture, that's just not, come on now, I'll give you a cup of coffee. That's, he welcomes him kind of into his life, right? Fellowship, a meal, that was pretty significant. Now, it never says in that passage, Zacchaeus becomes a Christian. It never says Zacchaeus becomes saved. But you know what it does say? What's his testimony at the end? If I've stolen anything, I'm going to pay back four times. And if I've swindled anybody, I'm going to give more than I took. Where did he get that idea? He got that idea from Exodus 22, right? It's one story. And so, yeah, and if you read the beginning of Luke, when the Pharisees come out to be baptized, right? What does Jesus say? I'm not baptizing you. Until you show the fruit in keeping with repentance. Just a few chapters later, it doesn't say Zacchaeus repented, but he's bearing the fruit of repentance, which is what Jesus was looking for at the beginning. There it is, right? And so Jesus goes to where he is, and he he influences him to move to where God wants him to be. Where, Where does God want him to be? Not just making restitution, living as God calls him to. That's a transformation, right? Um, Jesus does this. How about in um uh when Paul goes to the Areopagus, right, on Mars Hill. He's going to give a sermon, right? Does he talk about Abraham and Moses and Ezekiel? No. Here's what he says. You know, as I was wandering around here in Rome, I noticed you guys are really religious. I mean, you've got gods all over the place. In fact, I even found one little monument. I found one little shrine, and on it was carved to the unknown God. But you guys, you have God you don't even know. What's Paul say? I've come to tell you about that God. Let me tell you about him. I want to tell you about the God that you don't know. What's Paul doing? He doesn't use the Old Testament. They don't know the Old Testament. He points to one of their shrines. He moves to where they are And they wanted to make sure to recover all their bases, right? Just in case we missed a God or so, we're going to have a little shrine to an unknown God. Just make sure we, we, if there is one missing, we'll cover it. And what's Paul say? I'm going to tell you about him. Because you're really religious. Huh. 
being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. Ah, interesting, right? Well, when you read the Bible this week and these next days, you, you see if that doesn't work it's something. Oh, it gets more complicated than that. Here's how it gets more complicated. As I said, not everybody kind of is in one big group over there. We've got some people over here. Okay, so if we get really good at these means of minute, we get really good at this bridge here, right? And, you know, we, we practice that and we integrate that into our ministry and we really make that bridge work, right? I mean, that bridge is the best bridge. We shine it, we paint it. Now, how successful is this bridge going to be if we say, you know what, we love that bridge, so we're just going to use that bridge. Let's take that bridge and we'll slide it right over here and we'll use that bridge to influence these people to move to where God... Uh-oh. The bridge that worked really good for those people doesn't work over here at all. In fact, in the picture and in reality, in some cases... Some of our vehicles, some of our ministry vehicles, some of our strategies that work really well for one group of people may actually be counterproductive with another group of people. Just like if we were to take that arrow and move it over here, it would be moving these people further away from where God wants them to be. What does this group of people over here need? What what do they need? They need this bridge. Well, this bridge is sure different than that bridge. Which bridge is better? Well, kind of depends. It depends on where the people are. Um, okay. Well, we got people up here too. So do we take one of those bridges on the bottom? We just move it up. No, that'd be counterproductive. The group up here, they need a bridge doing that. Which means ministry strategies or bridges are secondary to where God wants people to be and where, where, and where people are. But here's the problem, and some of you will know this metaphor. But we love our bridges. We love our wineskins. We love the way it worked for us. We don't want some new, we don't like that. Okay. Yeah, but our preferences and the ministry vehicles and bridges that worked really well for us they may not be working real well for somebody else. Let's uh, make it a little more practical. I hope this isn't going to confuse you. Let's just think geography, right? So suppose, you know, over here, this is um, United States. Suppose this is um, China. But they have a whole different belief system, right? They're not like capitalists over there. They're whole different values. So do you just think, I mean, just think theoretically. We don't know ministry over there real well, but do you really... The way we do ministry, church, discipleship here, do you think that that really would be a home run how to do ministry? And Of course not. It's going to have to be different, right? And Hudson Taylor, like the first missionary to China, he was like excoriated by people because all of a sudden he dressed like a Chinese person rather than like a North American. And he wanted to learn the language and say, how can I bring the gospel to life in categories and terminology and in ways that they understand. That was radical. Then was threw them out of the church for that. Wait, well, if this is China, they need different bridges. Right, how about Afghanistan or a Muslim country, right? Well, but they need different vehicles, right? It's not going to... And so bridges are secondary or tertiary. The ministry and mission is primary. 
being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. But that's not just true geographically. That's also true demographically. Now, demography has to do with your birthday. Now, we're not going to get into your birthday because some of you are older than me. (laughs) Um, Well, you know what? Your birth date determines an awful lot about how you process stuff, how you think about things, what you were exposed to. And so let's be honest. Uh, Those of us that are baby boomers or older in the room, you know what? Technology is still like a foreign language to us, right? So what do I do? If I get a new iPad, I read the directions. My daughters, they don't know what directions are, right? They start working it. Uh, In fact, you don't even get directions anymore, right? Uh, When if you get a car now, you don't get an owner's manual anymore. You get an iPad. Um, okay, a whole different, but that isn't just a way of learning. That's a whole way of thinking. And so thinking is different. Um, Afghanistan, China, United States, different starting points for people, different ministry vehicles implied explicitly called for. Kind of makes sense? But man, do we love our bridges, right? So let me ask you this question. What causes most fights in churches? The definition, ministering is used by, being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where. No. What causes most fights? You're not knocking my bridge down. I became a Christian at a Wednesday night service. I'll be darned if we're stopping it. Who wants to do this small group thing? Who wants to change this? This isn't the music I remember from church, right? We, let, let's be honest. We love our bridges a whole lot more than we love God. Certainly a lot more than we love people. We love our wineskins a whole lot more than we love the wine of the gospel. Ministry, being used by God to influence people to move from where God wants people to be, that's primary. Secondary, tertiary, strategies, vehicles. If this night works, that night works, this music works. And all the strategies may come and go. The definition, the explanation never changes. Does that kind of make sense? Um, So, It becomes fighting words when we talk about bridges being destroyed. Now, that raises a question. Well, why why would you have to get rid of a bridge? Why not just like have church and we'll have like an infinite number of bridges so we can reach everybody? Well, here's one problem with that. I've never met a Christian ministry or been introduced to one that has unlimited resources. Have you? In fact, every ministry I know faces almost infinite need with super finite resources. Manpower, square footage, time, energy, money, all very meager resources and a huge mission. So here's the hard question. Where are we going to get the resources to build a new bridge, a new vehicle? From deconstructing an old bridge that's no longer effective. Demography, look, this is not 1950, it's not 1980, it's not 2000. 
Um, we're coming off of a pandemic. We don't, even, we don't even know what questions to ask about church. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, are you thinking about the vision? Think about the vision. I'm not even sure where we are. Um, like, who is Calvary Church now? How, like, how does it fit? Who is Calvary Church? Hard to answer. A whole new set of questions. Um, you know what? You can't take the tools from yesterday out of the toolbox and try to build something today because the tools don't work anymore. All the screw heads have changed. All the fittings don't fit. We need new questions, new, right? And where, where are the resources going to come from? By deconstructing some bridges that may not be as effective anymore. That's where it comes. Ministry. We're just talking about ministry. I didn't mean to start a fight. So here it is. Ministry is being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. Um, we use that as a definition. We try to live that definition. And so we say to our kids' ministry, hey, ministry is being used by God for you teachers, you volunteers, to influence kids to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. How do we do that? You know what? You need to love those kids. And they may not need to know the deep, dark nuances of the Bible, but they need to know about Jesus. And they need somehow to see Jesus' love incarnate in you. And that's what you do. And students... Um, you know, you, you need certain things too, and you need to be in relationship and in groups and build a peer network of people that are kind of journeying with you. Rather than try to be isolated in that, you won't survive alone, right? So we need different things. Ministry being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants people to be. I, I love Tuesdays, and today started women's ministry for the, for the thankfully, spring. <laughs> and uh, it's great. I mean, the, the whole building is like a buzz Tuesday mornings. I like it because they usually bring good snacks, the women. So I come out of my office looking for snacks. Um, but they're learning things and doing things. And some of that isn't, that's not how I want to learn. That's not how I figure out stuff the best. But you know what? If, if that is what they need and what's helping them, you know, we need that ministry bridge and it needs to excel. Ministry being used by God to influence people to move forward whatever it comes people. Okay, we got that? We'll, we'll, we'll see that lived out over the next few weeks. But that's, that's the context. Now, that raises an interesting question. And that is, how do we do that? Well, here's a key. We need to balance faithfulness and relevance. Faithfulness and relevance. Um, when I used to teach at a seminary, Brian Harm I'd bring Brian Harmelink in, and he and I would do some teaching together and do different things. And, you know, Brian is a translator, right? A Bible translator. He works for Wycliffe, and he's like, one of the head guys, he travels all over the world helping Wycliffe translators translate the Bible into the language of people so they can not just understand it, but that they can kind of experience it in their heart language they talk about. Um, and here's what Brian says. A good translation is faithful and natural, right? I'm using it wrong. Faithful to the original, but natural to the audience. That's exactly right. But that's not only translation. That should be all ministry. Faithful to the gospel, but relevant to the listener. You know what? You can be imbalanced on either extreme. You can be perfectly biblical, and your audience don't under, doesn't understand a single word you ever say. I mean, don't you think when Jesus was here, he could have perfectly explained the gospel in ways, categories, vocabulary that nobody could understand, and it would have been accurate? Sure, what did he do? He put the cookies on a low shelf. He came and he dressed just like a first century Jewish guy and he spoke yeah, 
in probably Aramaic, and he used categories and illustrations of the day. He was relevant to the audience, but he was faithful to the message. We need to balance that. And you can be imbalanced on both sides. You can be so faithful to the original that nobody listens to or understands what you're saying or so relevant that you no longer have a message. We need to balance that, right? Faithful to the text, the gospel, relevant to the listener, moving to where people are, relevance, in order to help them move to where God wants them to be. Well, that means that we need to know something about our times, not just the Bible. Now, think of this. If all you know is the Bible, and you know the Bible perfectly, you can still be terrible at ministry. Terrible. Because you have to know the Bible, but you also have to know the times and your audience, right? The people you're connecting with. Um, here, here's a verse that I like from 1 Chronicles 12. Um, from Issachar, right, one of the tribes, one of the 12 tribes. From Issachar, right, this tri- the men in this one tribe, they understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Isn't that interesting? I remember reading, I'm thinking, what? We expect to read, the men of Issachar knew the Bible, and they knew what they should do. That's not what it says. It said they knew the times and knew what they should do. Well, here's what's going on. Yeah, kind of about that time, Israel has two anointed kings, Saul and David. You're not going to find a Bible verse that says, well, Saul's not the real king. It didn't say that. We know that now. It didn't say that then. The men of Issachar, though, knew the times. And they knew. They saw the trajectory of David. They saw the trajectory of Saul. They knew the times. And they knew what they should do. Not just, you, you, don't, you can't know God's will if all you know is the Bible. You have to know something about the times. Here's another verse that says a similar thing from the New Testament. Matthew 16, um, talking to the religious leaders, right? Jesus loves to kind of smack them down a little bit. I always like that. Here's what he says. When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. Right? Isn't that something like sky, red at sky at night, morning? I, I don't know what that means, but here it is. Here's where it comes from. And here's what Jesus says. You know the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Notice, he doesn't say you can't interpret the Bible. He says, you know all about the weather, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. You're missing the arrival of the Messiah, but you know the details about whether it's going to rain or not tomorrow by looking into the sky. How dense can you be, right? So you got to know the Bible, but you have to know something about what's going on too. Um, Peter Drucker wrote this a long time ago. <laughs> and every time I read it, I think, boy, it's more true today than it was then. Listen to what Peter Drucker says. Every few, and t- when I'm reading this, you tell me if, if this isn't true of our world, that we're, and you know this, right? You watch the news, you know this. Every few hundred years in Western history, there occurs a sharp transformation. And within a few short decades, society rearranges itself. Its worldview, its basic values, its social and political structure, its arts, its key institutions. 50 years later, there's a new world. And the people born 
cannot even imagine the world in which their grandparents lived and into which their parents were born. We are currently living through such a transition. Isn't that true? I mean, you guys do it. Can you even imagine the world that your grandparents were born into compared to our world? I guarantee you this. Your grandkids will find that world and the world we grew up in to be completely foreign. They won't know how to navigate. They will not know how to process that. Every few hundred years, everything changes. And those that are born after that won't even be able to think about what life must have been like before that. We're living in such a time. One of the examples that Peter Drucker gives, and we, don't have to, we can explore this if you want later. Um, we often refer to like the 1500s, 16th century. We refer to that as a time of the Reformation. But that was one of these times, right? Think of what happened then. Technology, the printing press was invented. No longer did the scribes have to, think about that. You wanted a book? Fine, go copy one. That's how you got a book. You didn't go online and order it and it showed up the next day. You copied it or paid somebody to copy it. Not photocopy, copy it with a pen. They didn't have pens, copied it with a, with a feather. Um, philosophy's changing. All of a sudden, um, how we understand the universe is changing. Going from a geocentric universe to all of a sudden now, the sun being the center of the universe. And in religion, all of a sudden, the Reformation comes in. This thing called Protestants are coming in the church. The world is completely different. If you think about it, we have all those things happening today. Technology's changing, everything, not printing press, but internet, Wi-Fi, online. Um, religion, things are changing. Philosophy, psychology. We're living in a time just like that. And that's disconcerting if, to live in that time, isn't it? You wake up and say, like, where am I? Like, what? We don't even have ways to process how people think. Do you ever hear, you know, watch the news or hear some people talk and say, I don't, I don't know how they can think. It's impossible to think that. But they really believe it, right? You can't believe that, but they believe it. That's what he's saying. Uh, let, let me... Uh, Mentioned, we're coming in for a landing here. Um, we had a, a meeting here with some key volunteers. Some of you were probably there, elders, staff, some key volunteers. And uh, we talked about, Jay helped us understand a little bit about six converging forces impacting our country, community, and church, right? And so I'm just going to walk through it. And we can unpack these more as the weeks go by. This is the world in which we live now, right? This is kind of during and post-pandemic polarized world. Here we go. This is what we've seen in the last couple of years. Issues of justice. Did you ever notice? People define justice almost in opposite ways. So some define justice like this. Others define justice opposite that. So like, how in the world do you agree on what justice and injustice are? I, I read a, an interesting book, um, I guess it was a couple months ago, and it, it was really cool how to guide you. Here's what he said. Ju here's, the book begins, paraphrase. The book begins, justice is ensuring that people get what they deserve. The first question should always be, 
that God gets what he deserves. That's true justice. Let's start there. So rather than starting with some subset of human beings, let's start with God. Justice is justice. Okay, getting what you deserve. Let's start with God. So what does God deserve? Is he getting it? And the rest of the book kind of, you know what? If we started there, that would certainly clean house on both on all sides, right? And all of a sudden, we, yeah, that, that changes how we think about justice, getting what people deserve. Yeah, but how about getting what God deserves? Then you have leadership. Um, leadership, let's be honest. In our culture now, leaders no longer looked up to as much. Leaders are scrutinized and critiqued, right? Um, if you're a leader today, you've got crosshairs on you. And people are looking, for, you, you just look in the political world, the religious world, right, the social world. If you're a leader today, you are scrutinized and critiqued. You're not followed and kind of honored. That's yesterday's news. Um, politics. Oh, that's really unifying, isn't it? Uh, uh, and so I, I just finished uh, reading a book. It's a good book if some of you want to read. I don't even know if it's written by two Christians. Here's, here's what the title is. One Faith No Longer. One Faith No Longer. Uh, two sociologists, seems like they really did their homework, a you know, pretty good study. They, they did some qualitative and quantitative analyses, and, and here's what they said. Conservative evangelicals and progressive, conservative Christians and progressive Christians, they are no longer the same faith. No longer the same faith. They have different goals. They have different values. They have different strategies. And he makes a point, progressive Christians, think about this, more progressive, and you would know the names, right, that are, they have snippets from their blog. It says, progressive Christians consider Muslims an in-group more than conservative Christians. They're an out-group. That's politics, which has kind of become, right? And we've seen that at Calvary Church, right? We have red and blue at Calvary Church. The pandemic, not just the pandemic, but the response to the pandemic, right? And so do we wear a mask or not wear a mask? Do we, should we shut things down or not shut things down? Do you love people or should you fear things? Do you trust God? Or, I, I, I mean, we make moral arguments about things that aren't moral, and we wind up throwing the Bible around, and while we're doing that, we're separated and polarized from each other. Um, and social media really helps, right? Uh, yeah, and, and here's what social media does. Removes accountability. You know, when we're together on Sundays in church um, and you're leaving and you talk to somebody in the atrium, have you ever had this experience? And you start a conversation and the person that you're talking to, you quickly discover they're processing things a little differently than you are. But it makes a world of difference if you're talking face to face. And it makes a world of difference if you know what? We've been to church together. We've seen each other sing. We both love Jesus. We want to do it. Or sitting at the keyboard with no accountability, not looking into anybody's eyes, and you're firing off some heat-seeking missile, right? Um, and that's how it works. And intolerance just bubbles up in the whole thing. And so now, you know, it used to be in an old world, tolerance meant we can disagree and have a knockdown, drag-out argument. 
but we still care about each other. We tolerate. Tolerance doesn't mean that anymore. Tolerance now means on both sides. You have to agree with what I say. You have to have the same values or affirm my values. If you disagree with my values, you're, you're intolerant now. That's a very strange. Remember what Peter Drucker said? 50 years, you can't even imagine what the world was like 50 years. You think back 50 years from now, right? 1970. That's a whole different world. Whole different world. This is the world that we now live in. And God knows what he's doing. He called us to minister in this world. And what did he say? This is the context. And ministry is being used by God to influence people in that world to move to, from where they are to where God wants people to be. What are the chances that's going to happen by, you know, loud judgment, critique, nasty words, social media posts? That's probably not going to work, huh? Remember what Paul said? I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Become like me, because I became like you. Not as an end, but I love you so much. I was willing to move kind of out of my comfort zone to enter your experience a little bit, not as an end, so that I can love you and help you be influenced to move to where God wants you to be. That's what we're called to do. Pretty tough job, right? But it's a pretty purposeful, eternally important thing, though, right? If you think about it, and God entrusted us with this, but he didn't leave us alone. He gave us his spirit, gave us the scripture, and we put those things together. He's with us. It's going to be all right. We follow him, and he'll help us figure it out. Well, we've got nine weeks. We're going to look at how we read the Bible. We're going to look at the, what, the, what it means the Bible's a story. How do we read it Christotelically? You'll learn what those words mean. We'll look at a prioritized theology, and we're going to learn about how God made us. Biblical anthropology. If you want to understand change, repentance, the gospel... You can't go to a psychology book. You need to go to the Bible to understand how we're made. What does this internal to external change look like? Well, we're going to figure it out. We're going to have more pictures, and we're going to practice it. And, and I'll tell you this. These four things, they're not new, right? And even a Stephanie, you probably heard this, or you've experienced this one degree or another. Um, this definition, these four pillars... Um, Kind of Calvary churches build on these things, supported by these things. And these five things, those pillars in this definition, they have actually and literally changed my life. Changed how I read the Bible. Changed how I, I'm not good at any of this, how I interact with people. They will change everything. This isn't just input. Yeah, there may be some insight. You need to figure out how to integrate some of what we're talking about. Make it a part of your life. And your life will be different. Guaranteed. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thanks for uh, bringing us together. Thanks for calling us to this ministry mission thing. And we confess that we don't understand exactly where you want us to be, but, boy, we're happy you're journeying with us and leading us. And, Lord, we're uh, overwhelmed with the task of thinking that you want to use us to influence people to move from where God wants people to be. Lord, help us to understand where people are, not so we can become like them, but so we can know them and love them and help them think better and love better and live better and, is, and to call them to something greater, to paint a picture of the kingdom and summon them to that. 
which is what we're built for. Lord, help us to have joy in that and love in that, not feel under the pressure and the drudgery of trying to eke out another day and jump through the hoops. Lord, may this be a joy for us to be in process and call other people to that process. Lord, thanks for calling us to it. Jesus, thanks for partnering with us. And Spirit, we ask that you'd energize us and allow us to, to be better than we are to help people move to where you want them to be. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.